Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. You're tuned to RTE Radio 1 and we continue our Summer Sundays broadcasting the RTE players' dramatisation of stories from James Joyce's Dubliners. Tonight, another brace of brilliance. Evelyn and a little cloud. Evelyn leans her head against the curtain at the window as the evening deepens. She weighs her decision to flee Ireland with a sailor and embark upon a new life in a new country. But the conflict between the familiar and the future urges caution and erodes courage. This is Evelyn by James Joyce. She sat at the window watching the evening invade the avenue. Her head was leaned against the window curtains and in her nostrils was the odour of dusty cretonne. She was tired. Few people passed. The man out of the last house passed on his way home. She heard his footsteps clacking along the concrete pavement and afterwards crunching on the cinder path before the new red houses. One time there used to be a field in which they used to play every evening with other people's children. Then a man from Belfast bought the field and built houses in it. Not like their little brown houses, but bright brick houses with shining roofs. The children of the avenue used to play together in that field. The Divines, the Waters, the Duns, little Kyo the Cripple, she and her brothers and sisters. Ernest, however, never played. He was too grown up. Her father used often to hunt them in out of the field with his blackthorn stick. But usually little Kyo used to keep nicks and call out when he saw her father coming. Still... They seemed to have been rather happy then. Her father was not so bad then. And besides, her mother was alive. That was a long time ago. She and her brothers and sisters were all grown up. Her mother was dead. Tizzy Don was dead too. And the waters had gone back to England. Everything changes. Now she was going to go away like the others, to leave her home. Home. She looked round the room, reviewing all its familiar objects, which she had dusted once a week for so many years, wondering where on earth all the dust came from. Perhaps she would never see again those familiar objects from which she had never dreamed of being divided. And yet, during all those years, she had never found out the name of the priest whose yellowing photograph hung on the wall above the broken harmonium beside the coloured print of the promises made to blessed Margaret Mary Alacoque. He had been a school friend of her father, Whenever he showed the photograph to a visitor, her father used to pass it with a casual word. He is in Melbourne now. She had consented to go away, to leave her home. Was that wise? She tried to weigh each side of the question. In her home, anyway, she had shelter and food. She had those whom she had known all her life about her. Of course, she had to work hard, both in the house and at business. What would they say of her in the stores when they found out that she had run away with a fellow? Say she was a fool, perhaps, and her place would be filled up by advertisement. Miss Gavin would be glad. She had always had an edge on her, especially whenever there were people listening. Miss Hill, don't you see these ladies are waiting? Look lively, Miss Hill, please. She would not cry many tears at leaving the stores. But in her new home, in a distant, unknown country... It would not be like that. 
Then she would be married. She, Evelyn. People would treat her with respect then. She would not be treated as her mother had been. Even now, though she was over 19, she sometimes felt herself in danger of her father's violence. She knew it was that that had given her the palpitations. When they were growing up, he had never gone for her like he used to go for Harry and Ernest, because she was a girl. But latterly he had begun to threaten her and say what he would do to her only for her dead mother's sake. And now she had nobody to protect her. Ernest was dead, and Harry, who was in the church decorating business, was nearly always down somewhere in the country. Besides, the invariable squabble for money on Saturday nights had begun to weary her unspeakably. She always gave her entire wages, seven shillings, and Harry always sent up what he could, but the trouble was to get any money from her father. He said she used to squander the money, that she had no head, that he wasn't going to give her his hard-earned money to throw about the streets, and much more, for he was usually fairly bad of a Saturday night. In the end, he would give her the money and ask her had she any intention of buying Sunday's dinner. Then she had to rush out as quickly as she could and do her marketing, holding her black leather purse tightly in her hand as she elbowed her way through the crowds and returning home late under her load of provisions. She had hard work to keep the house together and to see that the two young children who had been left to her charge went to school regularly and got their meals regularly. It was hard work, a hard life, but now that she was about to leave it, she did not find it a wholly undesirable life. She was about to explore another life with Frank. Frank was very kind, manly, open-hearted. She was to go away with him by the night boat to be his wife and to live with him in Buenos Aires, where he had a home waiting for her. How well she remembered the first time she had seen him. He was lodging in a house on the main road where she used to visit. It seemed a few weeks ago. He was standing at the gate, his peaked cap pushed back on his head, and his hair tumbled forward over a face of bronze. Then they had come to know each other. He used to meet her outside the stores every evening and see her home. He took her to see the bohemian girl, and she felt elated as she sat in an unaccustomed part of the theatre with him. He was awfully fond of music and sang a little. People knew that they were courting, and when he sang about the lass that loves a sailor, she always felt pleasantly confused. He used to call her Poppins out of fun. First of all, it had been an excitement for her to have a fellow, and then she had begun to like him. He had tales of distant countries. He had started as a deck boy at a pound a month on a ship of the Allen Line going out to Canada. He told her the names of the ships he'd been on and the names of the different services. He had sailed through the Straits of Magellan and he told her stories of the terrible Patagonians. He had fallen on his feet in Buenos Aires, he said, and had come over to the old country just for a holiday. Of course, her father had found out the affair and had forbidden her to have anything to say to him. I know these sailor chaps, he said. One day he had quarrelled with Frank, and after that she had to meet her lover secretly. The evening deepened in the avenue. The white of two letters in her lap grew indistinct. One was to Harry, the other was to her father. Ernest had been her favourite, but she liked Harry too. Her father was becoming old lately, she noticed. He would miss her. 
Sometimes he could be very nice. Not long before, when she had been laid up for a day, he had read her out a ghost story and made toast for her at the fire. Another day, when their mother was alive, they had all gone for a picnic to the Hill of Hoth. She remembered her father putting on her mother's bonnet to make the children laugh. Her time was running out, but she continued to sit by the window, leaning her head against the window curtain, inhaling the odour of dusty cretonne. Down far in the avenue she could hear a street organ playing. She knew the air. Strange that it should come that very night to remind her of the promise to her mother, her promise to keep the home together as long as she could. She remembered the last night of her mother's illness. She was again in the close, dark room at the other side of the hall, and outside she heard a melancholy air of Italy. The organ player had been ordered to go away and given sixpence. She remembered her father strutting back into the sick room, saying, And Italians, coming over here. As she mused, the pitiful vision of her mother's life laid its spell on the very quick of her being. That life of commonplace sacrifices, closing in final craziness. She trembled as she heard again her mother's voice saying constantly with foolish insistence, Deravon, Saron, Deravon, Saron. She stood up in a sudden impulse of terror. Escape. She must escape. Frank would save her. He would give her life, perhaps love too, but she wanted to live. Why should she be unhappy? She had a right to happiness. Frank would take her in his arms, fold her in his arms. He would save her. She stood among the swaying crowd in the station at the North Ball. He held her hand and she knew that he was speaking to her, saying something about the passage over and over again. The station was full of soldiers with brown baggages. Through the wide doors of the sheds, she caught a glimpse of the black mass of a boat lying in beside the quay wall with illumined portholes. She answered nothing. She felt her cheek pale and cold, and out of a maze of distress, she prayed to God to direct her, to show her what was her duty. The boat blew a long, mournful whistle into the mist. If she went, tomorrow she would be on the sea with Frank, steaming towards Buenos Aires. Their passage had been booked. Could she still draw back after all he had done for her? Her distress awoke a nausea in her body, and she kept moving her lips in silent, fervent prayer. A bell clanged upon her heart. She felt him seize her hand. Come! All the seas of the world tumbled about her heart. He was drawing her into them. He would drown her. She gripped with both hands at the iron railing. Come! No, 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 it was impossible. Her hands clutched the iron in frenzy. Amid the seas, she sent a cry of anguish. He rushed beyond the barrier and called to her to follow. He was shouted at to go on, but he still called to her. She set her white face to him, passive, like a helpless animal. Her eyes gave him no sign of love or farewell or recognition.
We've been listening to Evelyn by James Joyce. Frank was played by Jim Reed, and the father was Peter Dix. Miss Gavin was played by Barbara McCaughey and the mother was Colette Proctor. Evelyn by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Little Chandler hasn't seen his friend Ignatius Gallagher since he left to work on the London Press eight years ago. Well, he could do nothing in old jog-along Dublin, or so he says. After an evening in a high-class hostelry hearing of Gallagher's vagrant and triumphant life, Little Chandler's feelings of admiration and envy turn to a dull resentment against his own life and opportunities now inaccessible. This is A Little Cloud by James Joyce. Eight years before, he had seen his friend off at the North Wall and wished him Godspeed. Gallagher had got on. You could tell that at once by his travelled air, his well-cut tweed suit and fearless accent. Few fellows had talents like his, and fewer still could remain unspoiled by such success. Gallagher's heart was in the right place, and he had deserved to win. It was something to have a friend like that. Little Chandler's thoughts ever since lunchtime had been of his meeting with Gallagher, of Gallagher's invitation, and of the great city London where Gallagher lived. He was called Little Chandler because, though he was but slightly under the average stature, he gave one the idea of being a little man. His hands were white and small, his frame was fragile, his voice was quiet, and his manners were refined. He took the greatest care of his fair silken hair and moustache, and used perfume discreetly on his handkerchief. The half-moons of his nails were perfect, and when he smiled, you caught a glimpse of a row of childish white teeth. As he sat at his desk in the King's Inns, he thought what changes those eight years had brought. The friend, whom he had known under a shabby and necessitous guise, had become a brilliant figure on the London press. He turned often from his tiresome writing to gaze out of the office window. The glow of a late autumn sunset covered the grass plots and walks. It cast a shower of kindly golden dust on the untidy nurses and decrepit old men who drowsed on the benches. It flickered upon all the moving figures, on the children who ran screaming along the gravel paths, and on everyone who passed through the gardens. He watched the scene and thought of life. And, as always happened when he thought of life, he became sad. A gentle melancholy took possession of him. He felt how useless it was to struggle against fortune, this being the burden of wisdom which the ages had bequeathed to him. He remembered the books of poetry upon his shelves at home. He had bought them in his bachelor days, and many an evening as he sat in the little room off the hall, he had been tempted to take one down from the bookshelf and read out something to his wife. But shyness had always held him back, and so the books had remained on their shelves. At times he repeated lines to himself, and this consoled him. When his hour had struck, he stood up and took leave of his desk and of his fellow clerks punctiliously. 
he emerged from under the feudal arch of the King's Inns, a neat, modest figure, and walked swiftly down Henrietta Street. The golden sunset was waning, and the air had grown sharp. A horde of grimy children populated the street. They stood or ran in the roadway, or crawled up the steps before the gaping doors, or squatted like mice upon the thresholds. Little Chandler gave them no thought. He picked his way deftly through all that minute, vermin-like life, and under the shadow of the gaunt, spectral mansions in which the old nobility of Dublin had roistered. No memory of the past touched him, for his mind was full of a present joy. He had never been in Corliss's, but he knew the value of the name. He knew that people went there after the theatre to eat oysters and drink liqueurs, and he had heard that the waiters there spoke French and German. Walking swiftly by at night, he had seen cabs drawn up before the door, and richly dressed ladies, escorted by cavaliers, alight and enter quickly. They wore noisy dresses and many wraps. Their faces were powdered, and they caught up their dresses when they touched earth, like alarmed Atalantas. He had always passed without turning his head to look. It was his habit to walk swiftly in the street, even by day, and whenever he found himself in the city late at night, he hurried on his way apprehensively and excitedly. Sometimes, however, he courted the causes of his fear. He chose the darkest and narrowest streets, and, as he walked boldly forward, the silence that was spread about his footsteps troubled him. The wandering, silent figures troubled him, and at times a sound of low, fugitive laughter made him tremble like a leaf. He turned to the right towards Capel Street. Ignatius Gallagher on the London press. Who would have thought it possible eight years before? Still, now that he reviewed the past, little Chandler could remember many signs of future greatness in his friend. People used to say that Ignatius Gallagher was wild. Of course, he did mix with a rakish set of fellows at that time, drank freely and borrowed money on all sides. In the end, he had got mixed up in some shady affair, some money transaction. At least, that was one version of his flight. But nobody denied him talent. There was always a certain something in Ignatius Gallagher that impressed you in spite of yourself. Even when he was out at elbows and at his wit's end for money, he kept up a bold face. Little Chandler remembered, and the remembrance brought a slight flush of pride to his cheek, one of Ignatius Gallagher's sayings when he was in a tight corner. Half time now, boys, he used to say light-heartedly. Where's my considering cap? That was Ignatius Gallagher all out, and damn it, you couldn't but admire him for it. Little Chandler quickened his pace. For the first time in his life, he felt himself superior to the people he passed. For the first time, his soul revolted against the dull inelegance of Capel Street. There was no doubt about it. If you wanted to succeed, you had to go away. You could do nothing in Dublin. As he crossed Grattan Bridge, he looked down the river towards the lower quays and pitied the poor, stunted houses. They seemed to him a band of tramps, huddled together along the river banks, their old coats covered with dust and soot, stupefied by the panorama of sunset, and waiting for the first chill of night to bid them arise, shake themselves, and be gone. 
He wondered whether he could write a poem to express his idea. Perhaps Gallagher might be able to get it into some London paper for him. Could he write something original? He was not sure what idea he wished to express, but the thought that a poetic moment had touched him took life within him like an infant hope. He stepped onward bravely. Every step brought him nearer to London, farther from his own sober, inartistic life. A light began to tremble on the horizon of his mind. He was not so old, thirty-two. His temperament might be said to be just at the point of maturity. There were so many different moods and impressions that he wished to express in verse. He felt them within him. He tried to weigh his soul to see if it was a poet's soul. Melancholy was the dominant note of his temperament, he thought, but it was a melancholy tempered by recurrences of faith and resignation and simple joy. If he could give expression to it in a book of poems, perhaps men would listen. He would never be popular, he saw that. He could not sway the crowd, but he might appeal to a little circle of kindred minds. The English critics perhaps would recognise him as one of the Celtic school by reason of the melancholy tone of his poems. Besides that, he would put in allusions. He began to invent sentences and phrases from the notices which his book would get. Mr Chandler has the gift of easy and graceful verse. A wistful sadness pervades these poems. The Celtic note. It was a pity his name was not more Irish-looking. Perhaps it would be better to insert his mother's name before the surname, Thomas Malone Chandler, or better still, T. Malone Chandler. He would speak to Gallagher about it. He pursued his reverie so ardently that he passed his street and had to turn back. As he came near Corliss's, his former agitation began to overmaster him and he halted before the door in indecision. Finally, he opened the door and entered. The light and noise of the bar held him at the doorway for a few moments. He looked about him, but his sight was confused by the shining of many red and green wine glasses. The bar seemed to him to be full of people, and he felt that the people were observing him curiously. He glanced quickly to right and left, frowning slightly to make his errand appear serious. But when his sight cleared a little, he saw that nobody had turned to look at him. And there, sure enough, was Ignatius Gallagher, leaning with his back against the counter and his feet planted far apart. Hello, Tommy, old hero. Here you are. What is it to be? What will you have? I'm taking whiskey. Better stuff than we get across the water. Soda? Lithia? No mineral? I'm the same. Spoils the flavour. Here, garçon, bring us... Two halves of malt whiskey, like a good fellow. Well, and how have you been pulling along since I saw you last? Dear God, how old we're getting. Do you see any signs of ageing in me? Eh, what? A little grey and thin on top, what? Ignatius Gallagher took off his hat and displayed a large, closely cropped head. His face was heavy, pale and clean-shaven. His eyes, which were of bluish slate colour, relieved his unhealthy pallor and shone out plainly above the vivid orange tie he wore. Between these rival features the lips appeared very long and shapeless and colourless. 
He bent his head and felt with two sympathetic fingers the thin hair at the crown. Little Chandler shook his head as a denial. Ignatius Gallagher put on his hat again. It pulls you down, press life. Always hurry and scurry, looking for copy and sometimes not finding it. And then, always to have something new in your stuff. Damn proofs and printers, I say, for a few days. I'm just glad, I can tell you, to get back to the old country. Does a fellow good a bit of a holiday? I feel a ton better since I landed again in dear, dirty Dublin. Here you are, Tommy. Water? Say when. Little Chandler allowed his whiskey to be very much diluted. You don't know what's good for you, my boy. I drink mine neat. I drink very little as a rule, said Little Chandler modestly. And not half one or so when I meet any of the old crowd. That's all. Oh, well, said Ignatius Gallagher cheerfully. Here's to us and to old times and old acquaintance. They clinked glasses and drank the toast. I met some of the old gang today. O'Hara seems to be in a bad way. What's he doing? Nothing. He's gone to the dogs. But Hogan has a good sit, hasn't he? Yes, he's in the Land Commission. I met him one night in London and he seemed to be very flush. Ah, poor O'Hara. Booze, I suppose. Other things too, said little Chandler shortly. <laughs> Ignatius Gallagher laughed. <laughs> Tommy, I see you haven't changed an atom. You're the very same serious person that used to lecture me on Sunday mornings when I had a sore head and fur on my tongue. You'd want to knock about a bit in the world. Have you never been anywhere, even for a trip? I've been to the Isle of Man. <laughs> Ignatius Gallagher laughed. <laughs> the Isle of Man. Go to London or Paris. Paris for choice. That'd do you good. Have you seen Paris? I should think I have. I've knocked about there a little. And is it really so beautiful as they say? Asked little Chandler. He sipped a little of his drink, while Ignatius Gallagher finished his boldly. Beautiful? Said Ignatius Gallagher, pausing on the word and on the flavour of his drink. It's not so beautiful, you know. Of course, it is beautiful. But it's the life of Paris, that's the thing. Oh, there's no city like Paris for gaiety, movement, excitement. Little Chandler finished his whiskey and, after some trouble, succeeded in catching the barman's eye. He ordered the same again. I've been to the Moulin Rouge. Ignatius Gallagher continued when the barman had removed their glasses. And I've been to all the bohemian cafes. Hot stuff. Not for a pious chap like you, Tommy. Little Chandler said nothing until the barman returned with the two glasses. Then he touched his friend's glass lightly and reciprocated the former toast. He was beginning to feel somewhat disillusioned. Gallagher's accent and way of expressing himself did not please him. There was something vulgar in his friend which he had not observed before. But perhaps it was only the result of living in London amid the bustle and competition of the press. The old personal charm was still there under this new gaudy manner. And after all, Gallagher had lived... He had seen the world. Little Chandler looked at his friend enviously. Everything in Paris is gay, said Ignatius Gallagher. They believe in enjoying life. 
And don't you think they're right? If you want to enjoy yourself properly, you must go to Paris. Mind you, they have a great feeling for the Irish there. When they heard I was from Ireland, they were ready to eat me, man. Little Chandler took four or five sips from his glass. Tell me, is it true that Paris is so immoral, as they say? Ignatius Gallagher made a Catholic gesture with his right arm. Every place is immoral. Of course you do find spicy bits in Paris. Go to one of the student balls, for instance. <laughs> That's lively if you like. When the cocottes begin to let themselves loose. You know what they are, I suppose. I've heard of them. Ignatius Gallagher drank off his whiskey and shook his head. Ah. Uh, you may say what you like. There's no woman like the Parisienne for style, for go. Then it is in a moral city said Little Chandler with timid insistence. I mean, compared with London or Dublin. London? It's six of one and half a dozen of the other. You ask Hogan, my boy. I showed him a bit about London when he was over there. He'd open your eye. I say, Tommy, don't make punch of that whiskey. Liquor up. No, really. Oh, come on. Another one won't do you any harm. What is it? The same again, I suppose. Well, all right. Francois, the same again. Will you smoke, Tommy? Ignatius Gallagher produced his cigar case. The two friends lit their cigars and puffed at them in silence until their drinks were served. I'll tell you my opinion, said Ignatius Gallagher, emerging after some time from the clouds of smoke in which he had taken refuge. It's a rum world. Talk of immorality. I've heard of cases, what am I saying? I've known them, cases of immorality. Ignatius Gallagher puffed thoughtfully at his cigar and then, in a calm, historian's tone, he proceeded to sketch for his friend some pictures of the corruption which was rife abroad. He summarised the vices of many capitals and seemed inclined to award the palm to Berlin. Some things he could not vouch for, his friends had told him, but of others he had had personal experience. He spared neither rank nor caste. He revealed many of the secrets of religious houses on the continent and described some of the practices which were fashionable in high society and ended by telling, with details, a story about an English duchess, a story which he knew to be true. Little Chandler was astonished. Oh, well, said Ignatius Gallagher, here we are in old jog-along Dublin, where nothing is known of such things. How dull you must find it, after all the other places you've seen. Well, it's a relaxation to come over here, you know. And, after all, it's the old country, as they say, isn't it? You can't help having a certain feeling for it. That's human nature. But tell me something about yourself. Hogan told me you had tasted the joys of connubial bliss two years ago, wasn't it? Little Chandler blushed and smiled. Yes. I was married last May, 12 months. I hope it's not too late in the day to offer my best wishes. I didn't know your address, or I'd have done so at the time. He extended his hand, which Little Chandler took. Well, Tommy, I wish you and yours every joy in life, old chap. And tons of money, and may you never die till I shoot you. 
And that's the wish of a sincere friend. An old friend. You know that. I know that. Any youngsters? Little Chandler blushed again. We have one child. Son or daughter? A little boy. Ignatius Gallagher slapped his friend sonorously on the back. Bravo! I wouldn't doubt you, Tommy. Little Chandler smiled, looked confusedly at his glass and bit his lower lip with three childishly white front teeth. I hope you'll spend an evening with us before you go back. My wife will be delighted to meet you. We can have a little music and... Thanks awfully, old chap. I'm sorry we didn't meet earlier, but I must leave tomorrow night. Tonight, perhaps? I'm awfully sorry, old man. You see, I'm over here with another fellow. Clever young chap he is, too. And we arranged to go to a little card party only for that. Oh, in that case... But who knows, said Ignatius Gallagher, considerately. Next year, I may take a little skip over here now that I've broken the ice. It's only a pleasure deferred. Very well. The next time you come, we must have an evening together. That's agreed now, isn't it? Yes, that's agreed. Next year, if I come, parole the honour. And to clinch the bargain, we'll just have one more now. Ignatius Gallagher took out a large gold watch and looked at it. Is it to be the last... Because, you know, I have an AP. Oh, yes, positively. Very well, then. Let us have another one as a Diak Adaras. That's good vernacular for a small whiskey, I believe. Little Chandler ordered the drinks. The blush which had risen to his face a few moments before was establishing itself. A trifle made him blush at any time, and now he felt warm and excited. Three small whiskies had gone to his head, and Gallagher's strong cigar had confused his mind, for he was a delicate and abstinent person. The adventure of meeting Gallagher after eight years, of finding himself with Gallagher in Corliss's, surrounded by lights and noise, of listening to Gallagher's stories and of sharing, for a brief space, Gallagher's vagrant and triumphant life, upset the equipoise of his sensitive nature. He felt acutely the contrast between his own life and his friend's, and it seemed to him unjust. Gallagher was his inferior in birth and education. He was sure that he could do something better than his friend had ever done, or could ever do. Something higher than mere tawdry journalism, if he only got the chance. What was it that stood in his way? His unfortunate timidity. He wished to vindicate himself in some way, to assert his manhood. He saw behind Gallagher's refusal of his invitation. Gallagher was only patronising him by his friendliness, just as he was patronising Ireland by his visit. The barmen brought their drinks. Little Chandler pushed one glass towards his friend and took up the other boldly. Who knows, he said as they lifted their glasses, when you come next year, I may have the pleasure of wishing long life and happiness to Mr and Mrs Ignatius Gallagher. Ignatius Gallagher, in the act of drinking, closed one eye expressively over the rim of his glass. When he had drunk, he smacked his lips decisively, set down his glass and said, No bloomin' fear of that, my boy. I'm going to have my fling first and see a bit of life and the world before I put my head in the sack. If I ever do. Some day you will, said little Chandler calmly. Ignatius Gallagher turned his orange tie and slate blue eyes full upon his friend. You think so? You'll put your head in the sack, repeated little Chandler stoutly. Like everyone else. 
If you can find the girl. He had slightly emphasised his tone, and he was aware that he had betrayed himself. But though the colour had heightened in his cheek, he did not flinch from his friend's gaze. Ignatius Gallagher watched him for a few moments and then said, If ever it occurs, you may bet your bottom dollar. There'll be no mooning and spooning about it. I mean to marry money. She'll have a good fat account at the bank, or she won't do for me. Little Chandler shook his head. Why, man alive, said Ignatius Gallagher vehemently. Do you know what it is? I've only to say the word, and tomorrow I can have the woman and the cash. You don't believe it? Well, I know it. There are hundreds, what am I saying, thousands of rich Germans and Jews rotten with money that would only be too glad. You wait a while, my boy. See if I don't play my cards properly. When I go about a thing, I mean business, I tell you. You just wait. He tossed his glass to his mouth, finished his drink and laughed loudly. <laughs> then he looked thoughtfully before him and said in a calmer tone, But I'm in no hurry. They can wait. I don't fancy tying myself up to one woman, you know. He imitated with his mouth the act of tasting and made a wry face. Must get a bit stale, I should think, he said. Little Chandler sat in the room off the hall, holding a child in his arms. To save money, they kept no servant, but Annie's young sister, Monica, came for an hour or so in the morning and an hour or so in the evening to help. But Monica had gone home long ago. It was a quarter to nine. Little Chandler had come home late for tea, and, moreover, he had forgotten to bring Annie home the parcel of coffee from Bewley's. Of course, she was in a bad humour and gave him short answers. She said she would do without any tea, but when it came near the time at which the shop at the corner closed, she decided to go out herself for a quarter of a pound of tea and two pounds of sugar. She put the sleeping child deftly in his arms and said, Here, don't waken him. A little lamp with a white china shade stood upon the table, and its light fell over a photograph which was enclosed in a frame of crumpled horn. It was Annie's photograph. Little Chandler looked at it, pausing at the thin, tight lips. She wore the pale blue summer blouse which he had brought her home as a present one Saturday. It had cost him ten and elevenpence. But what an agony of nervousness it had cost him. How he had suffered that day, waiting at the shop door until the shop was empty, standing at the counter and trying to appear at his ease while the girl piled ladies' blouses before him, paying at the desk and forgetting to take up the odd penny of his change, being called back by the cashier, and, finally, striving to hide his blushes as he left the shop by examining the parcel to see if it was securely tied. When he brought the blouse home, Annie kissed him and said it was very pretty and stylish, but when she heard the price she threw the blouse on the table and said it was a regular swindle to charge ten and elevenpence for that. At first she wanted to take it back, but when she tried it on she was delighted with it, especially with the make of the sleeves, and kissed him and said he was very good to think of her. Hmm. He looked coldly into the eyes of the photograph, and they answered coldly. Certainly they were pretty, and the face itself was pretty, but he found something mean in it. Why was it so unconscious and ladylike? The composure of the eyes irritated him. 
They repelled him and defied him. There was no passion in them, no rapture. He thought of what Gallagher had said about rich Jewesses. Those dark oriental eyes, he thought, how full they are of passion, of voluptuous longing. Why had he married the eyes in the photograph? He caught himself up at the question and glanced nervously round the room. He found something mean in the pretty furniture which he had bought for his house on the hire system. Annie had chosen it herself, and it reminded him of her. It too was prim and pretty. A dull resentment against his life awoke within him. Could he not escape from his little house? Was it too late for him to try to live bravely like Gallagher? Could he go to London? There was the furniture still to be paid for. If he could only write a book and get it published, that might open the way for him. A volume of Byron's poems lay before him on the table. He opened it cautiously with his left hand, lest he should waken the child, and began to read the first poem in the book. Hushed are the winds and still the evening gloom, not e'en a zephyr wanders through the grove. Whilst I return to view my Margaret's tomb and scatter flowers on the dust I love. He paused. He felt the rhythm of the verse about him in the room. How melancholy it was. Could he, too, write like that, express the melancholy of his soul in verse? There were so many things he wanted to describe. His sensation of a few hours before on Grattan Bridge, for example. If he could get back again into that mood. The child awoke and began to cry. He turned from the page and tried to hush it, but it would not be hushed. He began to rock it to and fro in his arms, but its wailing cry grew keener. He rocked it faster while his eyes began to read the second stanza. Within this narrow cell reclines her clay, that clay her once... It was useless. He couldn't read. He couldn't do anything. The wailing of the child pierced the drum of his ear. It was useless. Useless. He was a prisoner for life. His arms trembled with anger, and suddenly, bending to the child's face, he shouted, Stop! The child stopped for an instant, had a spasm of fright, and began to scream. He jumped up from his chair and walked hastily up and down the room with the child in his arms. It began to sob piteously, losing its breath for four or five seconds, and then bursting out anew. The thin walls of the room echoed the sound. He tried to soothe it, but it sobbed more convulsively. He looked at the contracted and quivering face of the child and began to be alarmed. He counted seven sobs without a break between them and caught the child to his breast in fright. If it died! The door was burst open and a young woman ran in, panting. What is it? What is it? She cried. The child, hearing its mother's voice, broke out into a paroxysm of sobbing. It's nothing, Annie. It's nothing. He began to cry. She flung her parcels on the floor and snatched the child from him. What have you done to him? She cried, glaring into his face. The Chandler sustained for one moment the gaze of her eyes, and his heart closed together as he met the hatred in them. He began to stammer. It's nothing. He... he began to cry. 
I couldn't. I didn't do anything. <gasps> Giving no heed to him, she began to walk up and down the room, clasping the child tightly in her arms and murmuring, My little man, my little manny, was you frightened, love? There now, love, there now, llama born, mama's little lamb of the world, there. Little Chandler felt his cheeks suffused with shame, and he stood back out of the lamplight. He listened while the paroxysm of the child sobbing grew less and less, and tears of remorse started to his eyes. That was A Little Cloud by James Joyce. Des Nealon played Little Chandler and Jim Reed was Ignatius Gallagher. Mrs Chandler was played by Colette Proctor. A Little Cloud by James Joyce was narrated by Connor Farrington and the producer was William Stiles. If you'd like to hear these and previous stories from Dubliners or you just can't wait to binge on the box set, you can listen to and download all 15 stories and more besides on our website, rte.ie slash Ulysses or on the Drama on One website. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rte.ie forward slash Drama on One. Drama on One.